I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. Flexner report was uh, devastating to not just homeopathy, but all kinds of naturopathic medicine. Um, the advent of patentable pharmaceuticals, petrochemical, petrochemical processing, that's so that um, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie could get further enriched. A couple of generations ago, everybody knew you do not suppress a fever. Very, mm. very, very few fevers are dangerous by themselves. The body is producing antibodies and histamines to fight this off. Illness is not to be feared. Ooh, do I have your attention yet? That, everyone, is Jerry Cantor, and he is the author of such titles as Interpreting Chronic Illness, Autism Reversal Toolbox, and most recently, Sane Asylums. Jerry works at the convergence of traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, and biomedicine in addition to acupuncture. He's busy right now. He's very busy. People pay out of pocket to go understand themselves better and find homeopathic remedies that will help them live at an optimal level. People pay out of pocket for this. They travel from all over the world to go see this guy. And his newest book is fascinating. And this episode focuses a lot on the idea of homeopathy, how it works. We talk about specific homeopathic remedies for fear. We talk about the terrifying special interests that influence our medical systems. We talk about how our bodies are built for struggle. In order for us to thrive, we have to struggle through setbacks and we have to suffer a little bit. And in, in the Western world, that's just no longer okay. You need a pill for everything. This is a very eye-opening podcast. If you uh, have the patience to, to really open your mind and to touch in and to um, explore some of these ideas that go against the grain, I really thank you for doing so. Because this is important information that we should all know. We should know about this stuff. We should know that there were mental health facilities um, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, that were thriving with this idea of homeopathic care. And uh, obviously what we're doing now isn't working for mental health. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy this episode. Find me on Instagram at McCormick or at seanmccormick.com. Without further ado, Jerry Cantor. And I'm here with Jerry Cantor. He's a licensed acupuncturist and a certified homeopath. Welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here, Sean. I love these these interviews that start with my mind being blown even before I can hit the record button. We're going to jump around to a lot of different topics today. And uh, I heard you on another podcast and I was like, man, I got to pick this guy's brain. I really want to talk to him. So if you would please just introduce the, the book title that was the catalyst for this conversation. Oh, sure thing. Okay, so yeah, this book I've written is called Sane Asylums, The Success of Homeopathy Before Psychiatry Lost Its Mind. And I've been expecting to get a whole lot of pushback on that subtitle. And uh, to my amazement, I'm not getting very much. And I think the people who uh, would like to you know, punch me out for having written this, um, they're keeping their mouths shut. Because you can't really argue with this book, even though there's a tremendous campaign against homeopathy, uh, in this country and abroad, been for years because it poaches on the profits of the patentable medicines from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, uh, there's, there's, uh, you can't really argue with history, and it's basically a history book of, of an era in this country between, I would say, 1875, focused on 1820 to uh, 19, 1875 to 1920, when uh, homeopathic um, mental asylums proliferated. And they were absolutely amazing. They were wonderful. They were utopias. They were often self-sufficient. Um, they offered compassionate care. Well, other asylums did that too, but they didn't have homeopathy. And offer and often they went well. Be they they, went, they they resorted to punitive measures for the mentally ill. But these asylums 
uh, were primarily they were so homeopathic. They offered had they had fantastic nursing corps. They offered clients um, farming, carpentry, arts. They were in beautiful settings, and no one was kicked out and sent into the community, all drugged up. Uh, the agenda you can call it moral hygiene, especially the nurses who were fantastic. Um, they would uh, speak gently to the inmates and really kind of work with them to uh, and engage with their delusions, try to get them to overcome them, give them distractions, made them giggle and laugh, um, did all kinds of things um, to allow allow the healing process to take to take mm -hmm. place. And the homeopathic remedy, um, the the, uh, the doctors would circulate in, in in the asylums and do what I call keynote prescribing. Because they did, they don't do what I do, which is sit with a client for an hour before I prescribe something. But they could do an awful lot with keynote prescribing and with all these other things. And people got well. Uh, they did by every measure you could you could you could choose from that time. And the measures varied. Um, people didn't die at the same rates. They had a higher, much higher quality of care. Um, they did quite well in the asylums, and often they didn't maybe didn't want to go home <laughs> to a dysfunctional <laughs> family or a, or a, you know a, ba a bad setting. But they did really well. It really is a history book. There are so many, there's so much reference to um, specific instances, you know, um, sons of aristocrats uh, and, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife and how she dealt after, after the assassination of her husband. I, I think before, before we get into some of the details, again, there's so many directions I want to go. It, it, you're going to have to do what you, what you probably are sick of doing, which is to try to explain uh, homeopathy. Cause I don't know that people are making the connection. Like what, wh what is homeopathy or what does homeopathic medicine have to do with, uh, with asylums for those uh, who are mentally ill? So maybe start by, uh, by explaining as simply as you can how homeopathy works. That's great. You sound like my wife who's always saying, make it simple, explain things before you get into <laughs> all your heavier ideas. I'd be happy to do it. I'm not sick of it. Okay. Um, so homeopathy relates to the, what's called the law of similars, using like to cure like. So that means, um, first of all, all the experimentation we do to figure out what remedies to create are done on healthy people. We don't work from um, with unhealthy people. So let's say you want to explore... Uh, a particular substance. Maybe this could be a great medicine. Let's say uh, um, the ink of the cuttlefish or something like that. I mean, there's reasons why you'd pick something like that. Anyway, the way the research works is you would get 10 or 12 healthy people of all ages. Ideally, you get a generic human being, which does not exist. You get a range of people, but they're all healthy. And they agree to keep their lives stable um, for a period of time, maybe several weeks or months, during which time they, on a regular basis, ingest uh, some of, the, of this mystery substance. They're not told what it is, so you cannot choreograph their response. So they, they, they keep everything in their life exactly the same, but they take some substance, not at a lethal amount, but just a certain non-homeopathic amount of it and on a regular basis, and they keep journals. And after period, uh, journals about what they notice, what symptoms they develop, what kind of experiences they attract, all kinds of stuff. And at the end of this period of time, those journals are forwarded to the investigator, the, called the proving master, and then its collation job is done, where we uh, sift out the things that are consistent, weird and strange across the whole group of them, and those become incredible clues as to what that medicine can do and what might indicate calling for it. Now, I'll make up a ridiculous example. Uh, I'll make two uh, two ridiculous examples. One, let's say on day four, someone complains that he had a terrible headache, but come to think of it, a brick fell on his head five minutes before. We won't count that simply. Okay. But if nine out of 10 report 
that whenever they see a piano, they sneeze. Now, that is so weird. That's so ridiculous. That might actually get into the Materia Medica. I mean, it's that's a ridiculous example. Mostly people will say, um, oh, my God, is almost anything that they could say like on, on every if, if 10 out of 10 out of 12 say that exactly at 230 in the morning, they wake up throwing up. That would mean that's that remedy has something to do with waking up two o'clock, two, two, two o'clock in the morning and throwing up. In any case, so that information gets collated and put into material, the materia medica, which is a reference of what the, the, the medicines can then treat because it's what it causes. And that encompasses mental symptoms, emotional symptoms, stomachs relate, symptoms relating to every part of the body, um, the stomach, the respiration, digestion, um, everything, so the skin. So we get this very, very comp complete picture about what a substance can do. So the Materia Medica is an extremely honest book because it doesn't discriminate between what you like and what you don't like, what you want and what you don't. Compare that to two books in the conventional world, a toxicology text, which imagines that some su these substances have only toxicological effects, ignores what, what good they might do, and the physician's desk reference, which pretends that the side effects, because they're embarrassing, you know, they don't count. No, they're 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 mm. you know you don't want them and because the good outweighs the bad you don't want to talk about them they're they're to the side homeopathic texts are very 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 honest in that sense so what happens is the, the rule that what you learn from this is that every substance in the universe can be toxic or medical and it depends on two things the amount that's given and the circumstance um so homeopathy is very very specific very very customized to the individual we have Hundreds and hundreds and I think well, I'd say thousands of remedies that a, a good practitioner has to sift through, have his, having his own or private algorithm to identify what exactly is going on with their patient. And it's going to be a single deep issue. Actually, it's going to be kind of an existential issue, very, very specific. And you have to be in my, my office for a while to understand this. Actually, I've got a book coming out next year, which is about the existential themes attached to the remedies. Hmm. Um, but maybe I'm getting I'm getting kind of far afield you since you asked me a good question there are there are remedies in the stores you know which are low potency remedies that means there's more of the substance in the in the medicine than a high potency remedy which has less of it so everything's backwards with homeopathy less is more the lower potencies can be used not in such a specific kind of way like you know people can children can have all kinds of personalities but benefit from a remedy like calcarea carbonica um if they have cradle cap doesn't really matter what their personalities are like, or, you know, or if they uh, if they're fat and pudgy and they kind of kind of cautious children. Well, that's already getting specific. Um, the point is, in, in acute illness, everybody is kind of the same. It's like in battlefield medicine. Um, if you if you're doing battlefield medicine, everybody's got the same problem. You, they're they're bleeding. They've got shrapnel in them, and they're at risk to infection. So you take care of that, and they're all the same. But if you wait a few maybe weeks. All these different individual differences will come out based on how people are responding to the trauma of war. Then you should stop doing battlefield medicine and do something for the chronic picture that's emerging. Some people will will keep, will not be able to stop bleeding. Some will bleed excessively. Some will scar very extensively. Some will not. Some will become mentally disturbed by having been in the war or go blind. These all these differences come out later on. And that's the difference between acute prescribing and chronic prescribing. Hmm. Um, but anyway. You give the remedy that reflects what's going on in the person. So this homeopathy is what I call spiritual forensics. You really go pretty deep into the individual when you're prescribing for something serious, which is what I love to do. Uh, treat seriously people, people seriously ill with 
uh, chronic conditions or autoimmune conditions. It's not diagnosis driven. People could have come, 10 people could come in with the same diagnosis, they'll all get different remedies. Or five people with completely different conditions, superficially, might get the same remedy. Um, I have to peer, go, you know, do this kind of investigation. It's a kind of investigation, you know, uh, it's called spiritual forensics. I'm a detective, figure out what's going on with this person and then prescribe for them. And I also tell what the theme of the remedy is so they can understand what's happening to them when they go through it. And the re from a single dose of a good remedy, this is this blows people's mind when they can't when I hear about it the first time. A single high potency dose. Not only is it just a single dose, but materially there's nothing there that you, a lab could measure. It just contains the imprint of a substance, which could be a botanical, a mineral compound, a venom, um, the, the, a crush, the, the, the crushed angry bee. Uh, and when that remedy matches you, it's like putting a tiny key in a, in a keyhole. And, and wonderful things happen. You get into, mm. you know, put, puts you into the mansion. And the effects of that go for weeks. You're processing this for weeks. And when you, when you graduate from that remedy and you come back and see me at the follow-up, a significant shift will have appeared. Um, it's like the, a bomb has gone off deep in the subconscious. Um, the uh, smoke settles, the dust, dust settles, the smoke clears, and things are different. Existential issues which had a powerful charge before, which do not have logical answers, suddenly they don't have that charge. And in consequence that, of that, because this is profoundly mind-body medicine, all kinds of physical things start to change too. Hmm. And then you go back in time also, because next time people come, they say, what have you done to me? I haven't had, this is exactly how I felt when I was 15 years old. I have these same symptoms. I said, well, okay, let's pretend that you're 15 years old now. Tell me exactly what's going on in your life. And very often the remedy will be for that 15-year-old 15 15-year-old 15 person's uh, situation. So this in psychoanalysis, we used to talk about that. I'm not a psychoanalyst, but the idea of going back in time and re peeling away layers of pathology, going back further and further into one's life. Um, homeopathy walks that same talk, but it actually it actually makes it happen. And it does not rely on the, the, the discourse. The remedy does that. And the homeopath, someone like me, basically just um, talks about it and sort of helps, helps to make it, make it, make it uh, understandable to the client. Today's episode is brought to you by Vitality Pro. They're a brand new sponsor, and I have done a massive deep dive into this company and the products that they provide. You see, Aging is inevitable, right? It's going to happen to all of us. As we grow, our body demands more care to keep it healthy and fit, but our good diet and exercise always enough. We might often need to supplement our bodies with proper nutritional add-ons to help keep our energy up and make healthy aging a reality. However, can we trust the supplements sold with the correct information on what to take? Vitality Pro has followed the latest in longevity science to produce a range of premium quality nutritional supplements focused on improving cellular health, sleep, and energy levels. Made with the purest raw ingredients tested by trusted third-party labs with certificates available to view to provide you with trust and confidence in your supplements. Achieve maximum results. Why not choose Vitality Pro? Visit vitality-pro.com. Use code OPP for a sweet discount and peruse their lineup. We've got Transveritrol, we've got Berberine, we've got Quercetin, we've got Longvita Curcumin, awesome products. Go ahead and go to vitality-pro.com. It, it's fascinating because the way that I think, so this podcast is focuses a lot on performance, right? Uh, a lot on um, biohacking, you know, using, using both traditional and cutting edge solutions 
to optimize the self, right? What goes in you, what goes on you and what's around you and making changes so that you can live more optimally. And the fact is, you know, after 407 episodes, it has to be custom. Everyone's different. The phase of the life that you're in, the morning that you had is all contextual and specific to you. And that's the thing that I think is is really striking for me. And, you know, for someone that that walks into uh, you know, a patient of yours that comes in, you're watching how they how they're sitting, you're watching their skin, you're watching That's their right. their tonality, the colors that they're wearing, how they talk about watch their how mother. they how they park their car. Uh-huh. Uh, if I can look out the window, or all kinds of funny things like that that we make a lot of hay out of. Um, yeah, go keep, I'm sorry, I interrupted. You. Yeah, you? no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this idea that we're treating each person as their own sovereign being with their own experiences and the way that they see the world and figuring out a way to help them be their best. And, and, and so that's why this is fascinating to me because, you know, within the context of the book that you've written, you know, it seems to me, and maybe you can agree with me that there's more of a focus, I would say in the last maybe five or 10 years on mental health you know, it's it's a more common phrase now than I think it was. You know, um, potentially, you know, like the baby boomer generation of my, of my parents. It wasn't it wasn't wasn't a topic of conversation, and and maybe it's because millennials are are more self reflective, uh, or they just have access to information. But I see that mental health is becoming an increasingly an important topic. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. This post COVID stuff, everybody's all wonky, and and so I what I what I see. And especially with the book and the work that you do with homeopathy is to, to find solutions for mental health that are individualized for people. And, and lo and behold, there is a context and a historical reference for the successes of individualized care for people who are mentally unwell. So that's a lot of preamble, but I think, I think the, the question that I'm getting at is, why did those go away? Is there a simple answer to why uh, why these sane asylums made way for clinics and hospitals and research centers? Oh, well, that, that's the topic of several chapters in this book. I, I, the chapter I have is called The uh, Concessions to the Spirit of the Times. Um, very briefly, the ni- 1910 Flexner Report was uh, devastating to not just homeopathy, but all kinds of naturopathic medicine. Um, the advent of pat- patentable uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, things, things that you can make a profit from. They were their off- offshoots of, of bio, bio um, um, uh, petrochemical, petrochemical processing um, that, so that um, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie could get, could get uh, further enriched. So many things to tell you, uh, Sean. These, basically, one, one answer is, too, that these asylums uh, eventually failed because they were successful. They grew and grew and grew in size, and way too many people were, were, were dumped in there. You can thank Dorothea Dix for this. She was a wonderful woman, but she campaigned so hard for the uh, asylums, uh, for asylum care that uh, many of them very quickly became overrun by by patients, and then they were not well funded and very you know big decrease in the quality of the uh, of the um, of the staff, and then the old abuses of the pre moral care era. Well, they all came roaring back. And these places became nightmares. And then the phony business about uh, getting people off, getting people into the community happened. 
Um, the, the guy you want to read is uh, Robert Whitaker, whose books uh, uh, Mad in America and um, Anatomy of an Epidemic, using the pharmaceutical industry's own research, you know, it proves that this stuff did not work. Just in fact, it made everything worse and created more and more mental health, mental mental health, Ill, uh, mental illness in this country. Um, so it's it's you're not supposed to talk about it. It's supposed to be you know he's supposed to take your medicine, develop tardive dyskinesia and five different kinds of uh, bi bipolar disease, and uh, just act like it's an inevitability. That's not how we used to be. People used to be a lot more sturdy, especially in those days that uh, when I wrote about things. Um, I mean, when, what this book is about. Mental illness was completely different, completely different. Not that it was all wonderful. Uh, the, the country was reeling under the effects of the Civil War and the carnage. The whole country was in grief, which is why these mental hospitals proliferated. Um, people were drunk. There was a, inebriation was an incredible problem. Um, there was syphilis. Um, there was all kinds of debility. Not what we have today. Very, very different. So I actually had to struggle with the idea of how to bridge the time gap of the mental, what, what mental illness was then and how related to things, uh, how they're going now. So you've asked an enormous question. Uh, at the end of the book, I have a, what I, I created a compendium of madness perspectives, just to give an idea about how, you know, let's not have this knee jerk response to, uh, to, um, to schizophrenia or psychosis or manic depression, like you automatically know what it is, like the uh, DSM-5 implies. That's a bullshit book. Um, those those conditions, uh, those labels are made up, you know, out of thin air, not entirely, but there's some attempt to put labels on things that change all the time. And uh, they keep adding to that that book and uh, acting like these conditions are written in stone and they don't represent human response to existential issues. And then because people really do act like that when they're drugged and, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, the people start think, you know, thinking in those terms like, Mental illness is a disease that descends on you and has no relationship to reality. Um, that has been a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not really what we are what we are born to experience as human beings. That's mm -hmm. not how we're meant to be. We are meant to struggle. We're meant to to endure loss and and uh, exhaustion and uh, um, in crisis and uh, and serious uh, serious decisions to make, existential angst, if you will. But that doesn't mean that, you know, getting drugged for that is going to, is going to be your way out. Right. No, we have to. And homeopathy is great because it does not deny any of that. And it basically offers you when you when the prescribing is good. It's not like you, you're 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 uh, going to be sipping pina coladas on the beach all the time. You get to have wherewithal and perspective and you become tougher and much more resilient mm. and much more aware of things. Uh, one of my big bugaboos is this idea that uh, the pharmaceutical industry makes a lot of capital out of, that all disease you know, befalls us out of the blue, pandemics, uh, uh, autoimmune conditions, we're, we're helpless. We just wait around or take some, some useless tests you know, in response to them. Oh, the tests are inconclusive. You got this, you got that. Uh, from my perspective, I, I haven't done my job if I haven't interpreted someone's disease to them or their illness. My job is not just to give them the remedy and go home. But to explain what his theme is, explain what it means existentially, and also predict for the client what they're going to be going through when they process this. Mm -hmm. Not easy, necessarily. Things get worse before they get better with good prescribing. But it's real. And the aggravations that come with homeopathy, um, they're all familiar. They all represent uh, a, a backlash from the past. But people get through it, and I cheerlead them through it. And this is why I'm, I'm constantly busy. Uh, people get, who, who go for this. You know they 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 uh, they understand the, the the importance of it, and they don't want to just go through life drugged up. 
You know, yeah. they want to learn from life. They don't want to be sipping pina coladas on the beach. This is an important idea that that permeates, I think, uh, the best of 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 natural health, of holistic health, of integrated health, and is this idea that we are born to struggle. We are born to change over and over. We are born and we exist on this planet to learn lessons and grow as as a as a person as a soul as a body through the the seasons and phases of our life and what western medicine has done is to take try to take that away to try to alleviate or uh create antidotes to this inevitable suffering and and this it sort of plays on this idea that that in order to for something to heal there has to be some expression of symptoms that's part of the healing process, right? And so by, you know, if my kid, uh, you know, has swelling from a sledding injury, we were just out in the snow sledding and I pump them full of, of, of ibuprofen to try to keep the swelling down, I'm actually hurting their body's own ability to heal. And that that is a that's a crazy idea. I think for a lot of people for, I think for most people that, that, that you would, that you would let it, you know, swell up a little bit. Maybe you can just sort of build on that idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are built, we are built to survive ice ages and earthquakes and extreme. Uh, also every, every kind of physical catastrophe, um, all the so-called pathogens that are around us in the soil and the air, we actually, are built to survive most of them. And when new ones come along, the vital force or our, 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 our epigenetic capacity is actually able to um, adjust to them and also completely new new kinds of problems, um, eventually uh, deal with them. That's what that, with the price we pay for that is both individual sickness and, and epidemics and pandemics. The people who come through that genuinely and were allowed to, as you say, you know, they are better off. Um, Everything is here's two things that are that are completely inverse for homeopaths in the conventional world. We like acute illness. Not fun to be acutely ill, but guess what? It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It means that the vital force, which is homeopathy lingo for the uh, subconscious imbued with the immune system, the two things together, it means the vital force has in, as I encountered it, encountered a, a pathogen or an emotional insult recognized it, mobilized against it, and fought it off. Now, that might be, that's the structure of a fever. We're idiots to, to constantly be suppressing our fevers with Motrin and Tylenol. We are complete idiots just in, you know, um, enriching the pharmaceutical industry. A couple of generations ago, everybody knew you do not suppress a fever. Very, mm -hmm. very, very few fevers are dangerous by themselves. What do you, the body is producing antihistamines and, and, and antibodies and histamines to fight this off. It's like taking your, your car, engine light and your car goes on. You take, take it to the mechanic and say, uh, fix my, change my engine light. It's really stupid. We get, we get better in spite of that. The reason that's come about is because in our economic system, parents have to go to work. They can't stay home with their kids. Got to send them to school so they suppress the fever and stuff like that. But a few generations ago, nobody did that. It was really, everybody knew that was foolish. Now, a chronic illness... Um, which has been normalized in society. Oh, I don't have asthma. I take my my uh, my inhaler every day. This is great. I'm not depressed. Watch me go. I'm on my Zoloft or my Prozac. I'm I'm functional. Watch me go. Um, we hate that homeopaths. We think that's a, a cop out. We it's sweeping things under the rug. You're going to pay a price later on. 
um, God forbid you get on the neuroleptics and wind up developing some of these new diseases that never existed before. So it's the opposite of how things are now. We're all terrified of acute illness. We have normalized chronic illness. Um, what homeopathy does, and I've got a number of metaphors to you know, explain this, it tricks the vital force into converting a chronic problem into something like an acute problem. And that's good because now this chronic thing, you've got good days, bad days, but you always know that depression is back there or your obsessive compulsion dis disorder is back there in the, or your autoimmune condition flares up and doesn't flare up. What if you could take that condition, compress it into a, a, a smaller event, which has the beginning, middle and end, and then make progress? That's what we look for. I call that getting traction. Um, that's what we like to do. So a good remedy, here's some more metaphors for what this is. It's like a permission slip to the subconscious to recognize an issue and get going on it. It's the, the vital force when it encounters a, a remedy's essence with this existential issue put there says, oh, oh shit, I hate that. What the, what the hell are you showing me here? Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's hardly any of it there. It's really a tiny little thing. All right, let me get going. Kind of rolls up his sleeves and, and goes to work. So it, it's a revisitation of the scene of the crime under more favorable circumstances. And that can't be done through just ordinary therapy. And there's absolutely nothing in conventional medicine remotely that allows that to happen. Mm. Um, but homeopathy does. You need some good prescribing, but it's when people are on their game and they know they have a good algorithm, they know Materia Medica, they can prompt this. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, very, very, it's advanced placement common sense, Sean. Getting back on the horse that threw you. Do you have to do uh, a randomized controlled trial to prove that getting back on the horse that threw you is a good idea? If you lived in a horse culture where you're being able to ride a horse was really important, this would be a very big deal. Someone gets thrown from a horse and will never get back on one again. They could lose their livelihood and be completely non-functional in that society. Well, okay, maybe not put the kid back on the same crazy horse that threw him. Maybe a junior version, like a pony, lead him around the corral. But on the pony, the kid's saying, oh shit, I'm on a horse again. This is horrible, I'm gonna be thrown. He's re-engaging with the scene of the crime under more favorable circumstances. Led around the corral a few times, he finally gets off and says, you know, Maybe it wasn't all horses. Maybe it was just that one horse. I'm mm -hmm. back to baseline. With homeopathy, it's better than that because you don't just go back to baseline. Um, when you, and now to use your lingo, you know, we, we recover ourselves, become the better version of ourselves by overcoming some, some trauma that has become part of our personality and our character and has tremendous uh, fallout effect through all of our health. All the, if you read the material medic of the remedies, every bar part of the body is impacted by the, the influence of a particular substance. You know, so the homeopath has to find what the essence is there. What's at the center? What's at the very center of that circle, you know, to prescribe so that the the um, uh, implications can be played out. Hmm. It by prescribing strong chemical based prescriptions, you are taking out the process of allowing someone to do the work to get better. And That's people, right. people are lazy. People want a pill to lose weight. People want a pill to sleep. People want a pill to feel good. And it's not going, it's not working. Like we're not healthier. We're not healthier now in 2022 than we were in 1982. We are worse. We are way worse. In fact, like the, in, 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 in my research, my research, um, and, and some of the interviews that I've done, you know, since the 1980s, our, our overall health in the Western world has plummeted 
um, because people don't want to do the work. They don't, they don't make the time to do the work. They don't, they don't, uh, they're not introspective about, about how they can improve themselves. And they're, they, they just want a quick fix so they can go back to, you know, back to their life. And I think that it's, it's sad and it's going to build, right? I mean, this is going to get worse, isn't it? Every coin has two sides. I think there's very good stuff happening uh, that's under the radar, that's not reported in the mainstream. Um, uh, actually, the the uh, both both COVID and the autism epidemic exploded the use of homeopathy. You wouldn't know know it to hear about the uh, hear about the campaigns from the FDA and how people in the mainstream talk about it. But <laughs> the usage is, has really gone wild. I mean, I've been kick ass busy for for years. Hmm. Um, I have the problem of getting clients out of my office. Um, it's, and you're not going to, and the people are paying out of pocket. It's not covered by insurance. Um, so yeah, it goes in both directions. You know, I remember when, uh, the Occupy Wall Street movements happened, nobody could supposedly nobody in quotes could predict it. Something was going on. Those pe- people were talking, talking behind the scenes. It just wasn't in the, in the radar, you know, on the radar, things are going on behind the scenes. I could tell you about things happening in homeopathy and conferences I've been to with tremendous amount of enthusiasm, um, uh, excitement, um, wild audiences, but you're not going to hear about it in, uh, in the right. mainstream. A lot of things. I remember when, um, let me see what was going on here. Robert Kennedy debated uh, someone. Dershowitz? Was it, was it Dershowitz. It wasn't reported in the newspapers. No. It's a major, major important debate. They squash stuff. Um, tell you this, um, there's never in my life, in my lifetime, been a single positive article in the New York Times about homeopathy. Not one. Um uh, acup- I'm an acupuncturist, and uh, also in the in the early '70s when I started in the mid '70s when I started practicing learning, we were called every name in the book, voodoo doctors, we all kinds of crazy things. We had to practice needling after dark secretly because it was illegal to put a needle in anybody. Now, you know, 40 years later, my generation created a profession of acupuncture where people come out of Ivy League schools and become acupuncturists. It's licensed in every single state. How did that happen? It was not through the graces of the media or the mm. Or the or the scientific establishment, not at all. Strictly from people's, um, you know, demanding to use it. It's still not uh, won all its battles because it's not pharmaceutical, and people have to, you know, can't get insurance for it. But things happen uh, when something is true. It's it will never go out of existence. You can marginalize it and push it down. The law of similars is a law of nature. As I say, getting back on the horse to threw you. Uh, you can't disprove that. <laughs> you have a you'd have to be an awful fool to try. Um, so people will always part of them, even when they when they're doing the doing something dumb, will kind of know it's not hard to convince them. And spend some time with them that this is the way to go. Um, I having I, I don't like to get I don't like I'm, I'm not going to take clients where I really have to convert them. If someone brings them in there, you know, or they're on tons of medications, they're not going to come off anything, and they they just want a pill. And they think I'm going to support them while I do all kinds of stupid things at the same time. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not in the business of converting anybody while I treat them. And there's plenty enough people who already think the way you and I do that they've got to put up with some stuff and life is worth living to its fullest you know when you engage with the issues of life and don't run away from them or pretend mm. that they don't happen you know you, that's not a way to, to go from cradle to grave yeah yeah we got to grow up a little bit and yeah today's episode is brought to you by bio pro plus i love this stuff it has made a major change in my life in my metabolism in my mood in my ability to put on lean muscle mass and feel as powerful as i want to feel 
BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging and hormone treatments. Before you do TRT, before you start taking a bunch of herbs that may not make you feel the way that you want to feel, you should try this. You can go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. You know, you know that a sponsor is a hit when people who have purchased it reach out to me and say, holy cow, Sean, I tried this and it's amazing. It's blowing my mind. It makes me better at everything that I do. I love having sponsors like this that really make a difference in people's lives. And this product is, it's absolutely incredible. It's growth factors and amino acids that will help you improve your hormones, become better at everything that you want to do. So go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. I want to, I have this, this sort of, this sort of concept and idea, and I, I want to kind of run it by you and get your thoughts on it. And, you know, the, the idea, and maybe homeostasis is not the right word, but our bodies are built. We have these innate immune systems, right? We our, our bodies created, evolved, and I'd be curious your thoughts on that. But uh, our we have these we have these biological systems that are complex, and uh, we know we really know so little about uh, how the brain works. And um, but this idea of homeostasis that the body knows what to do, you just empower the body to do what it does the best, which is to uh, which is to to be in, in an optimal state. And as we explore ways to get our bodies back into homeostasis, I wonder about how that connects with mental health. Is there a homeostasis for mental health? Do I have a, a sort of optimal operation, an optimal mental health sort of bandwidth do 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 you see where i'm going with that um you're going to have to read my next book which is coming out in october which is called the the emotional roots of chronic illness uh, homeopathy for existential uh, stress but i want to add, try to answer your question um and this is based this is something i figured out based on uh combining uh the five element system in chinese medicine with homeopathic miasmatic theory no i don't think homeostasis is the there, there are many many systems which do achieve and, and look for, you know, homeostasis within the body. Uh, we want a regular uh, breathing rate. We want our heart rate to re be pretty stable. But in the bigger picture, um, we are also designed, we must grow and evolve. We must grow and evolve. And it's not just, you know, go from infancy to childhood to adolescence to, to uh, um, adulthood, middle age and old age. Although those things, every, every one of those stages has its challenge. In fact, I could stick with that. Let's say those five stages. Um, you have to not just pass through them homeostatically, but rise to the challenge within each of those things mm. and be creative. And uh, uh, I have uh, broken those elements into into antinomies um, that 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 are, are basically deep five deep existential questions that we have to we, we ask. We don't even know we're doing it, but we have to we have to crack those nuts, those five nuts. Every, every one of those stages in infancy uh, is synchrony versus isolation. Am I going to be just isolated or am I going to be in synchrony with, with other people and with, my, with, my, with, with nature? The second one, which is, and that's the element of fire in Chinese medicine and mm -hmm. which relates to um, circulation and the heart and um, in homeopathy that could permit, this is too much for you, but it's, it relates to the tubercular miasm. The second stage, which is earth, 
in, in Chinese medicine and the meta metabolic system. The issue there is challenge versus anxiety. Okay. Um, it's not like we're going to want a flat line between those. Sometimes we absolutely have to be anxious, you know, and, and, and give into what that's, what's that protecting us from. And sometimes we want to bite off more than we can chew. We have to negotiate that. Those, those things are absolutely critical to the metabolic system. The metaphor is accurate, biting off more than you can chew. And to the end, to the period of adolescence, I can go through all these things for you. There's five, five stages. Yes, you know, adulthood in uh, adulthood, the miasm is psychosis, S-Y-C-O-S-I-S, which relates to uh, the disease of uh, gonorrhea. <laughs> you don't need probably, <laughs> the ordinary people don't have to need, you know, unless you get into homeopathy, you don't have to understand that. But in Chinese medicine, it's the element of, uh, of metal and it relates to grief and it's orientation. Where am I in life? As an adult, you should kind of, you should be working on where am I in life? You know, am I, am I, uh, am I, Am I doing what I'm supposed to be? You know, supposed to be. Am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I stuck in grief, which is the past, or am I am I centered here and uh, able to you know live in, live in the moment? And that's that's related to the sense of smell. And by the way, so hmm. my my antinomy there is centeredness versus um, versus uh, disorientation, and the element and the sense dimension of a sense of smell, which pertains to that in Chinese medicine. Guess what? An, an early indicator of Alzheimer's disease where you've lost your orientation is the loss of sense of smell. And mm. I figured that out well before it actually happened clinically just by doing it on a philosophical level. So adulthood is associated with this existential question. Um, where am I in, in time and space? I sh am I centered or am I, am I caught in the past or hopelessly you know, fantasizing about the future? Then what have we got? We have... Um, the, that, that, that relates to uh, the respiratory system, by the way. And then the, the fourth one is... Uh, um, Middle age. Which is, let me think here, what's going on? Uh, oh, 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 let's see, let's see. <laughs> well, I guess we can go to, um, to um, oh, the kidneys and fear. The, the, the element, uh, the emotion of fear, which you can break down, and this is the most complicated dimension of all, entropy versus consolidation. So this has to do with our sense of legacy. Will, will what I've done in my life and, you know, be, be relevant for generations that follow, follow me? Have I achieved a legacy? Or have, has my fear kept me from, from, uh, from doing anything beyond, beyond what I, uh, I think is going on right now? And this is the dimension that actually the most serious, the most serious, heaviest, most existential dimension, which relates, to, we call that the dimension of water in Chinese medicine. It's the sense dimension of, of, of hearing has to do with the sense of hearing because we hear our calling. Our calling is what we're meant to do at a deep level. We hear the voice of God. We don't see the voice, see God. We, this language is very interesting. We say, I hear the voice of God. What is my calling? So hearing in Chinese medicine, the ears are the opening of the kidneys and they have to do with these, with the, the, um, with reproduction and water metabolism. It's a lot to tell you like now, but so it's way beyond what I would normally do. And the last one, which is, which is the um, uh, which has to do with neurology, which is in Chinese medicine is um, is wood, the element of wood. Um, that's also a, a, a very heavy existential question relating to old age and rebirth. And there the question is, has the insurrection of my birth been fruitful? That's mm. about as heavy as it gets. Yeah. Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, has a fantastic memorial in Washington, D.C. And there in Latin it is, uh, you know, I, my life was not in vain. Um, not everybody lives at that level, but once you get to old age, I think everybody 
we'll we'll wonder about that at, at some point. Some people will made it make it very prominent in their in their own lives and maybe live with that that existential question even when they're younger. But uh, if you don't resolve anyway, if you don't resolve these any of these antinomies, um, you are prone to the disease that pertains to that dimension. And in my books, I talk about the disease that come from being unable to resolve the tension in that in those in five individual existential questions. Wow! Holy smokes! Wow! The 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 you just blew my mind. I'm trying to I'm trying to put all that together. <laughs> I, I I encourage everyone listening right now to just rewind like two minutes and go listen to that again because <laughs> that that in and of itself could send you down some some cool research on your own to try to to try to 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 wrap your mind around that. Um. In my first book, by the way, I created a uh, a template where people could create their own mandala, mm-hmm. so they can actually see where they are in relationship to these types of questions, and that would tell you if you actually go and do the exercise. It's the book is uh, interpreting chronic illness, the synthesis of traditional medicine, uh, uh, traditional Chinese medicine, homeopathy, and biomedicine. And if you actually go to the, uh, uh, I think I have it for free on my website at uh, uh, rightwhalepress.com. If you actually want to try it, some people have. You can make a mandala and get a sense of where you are in relation to those those types of questions and and get a sense of what existentially you are at risk to in terms of getting sick. And then you can meditate on that. You can think about it. and uh, It's a useful thing to do. But um... well, well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, to your point and and we've covered this thus far is like you got to do the work. You, you know, have some enthusiasm and some curiosity about your life, about yourself, about your health, about the human experience, because you learn so much when you engage with your life a little bit. Uh, and, and so doing practices, I, I'm going to go do it um, because I have not done, I've not done, I've not done a, a personal mandala myself. I've seen them, and um, but I've never done one for myself. So I think that would be a good exercise for me. Um, I can do something really simple for you here. I mean, I think that what I just did there is people shouldn't struggle with that so hard. I mean, read the book when it comes out in October. It'll, it'll. There's plenty to chew on in there. But I want to. I've got a very simple method here that is very accessible. I one day I love to do a TED talk on it. I call it the inborn toolkit of the emotions, and this is a uh, psychology light given to you by Chinese medicine, according to me. So each of the five core emotions, and I just, I are, let's take um, uh, joy, uh, anxiety, um, fear, anger, and grief. Those five, those, that's your inborn toolkit. Now, just like tools, the emotions are designed to solve a particular problem. You take your, your tool out, you, you solve the problem, and then you put it away. The emotions are the same, same way. And I'm going to go through that. It's it's really it's really kind of cool. And I've done that with using the actual the actual tools. Um, so the uh, joy is a sketchpad. When you're happy, it means that you have ideas. You want to know you've got plans. You're going to do something. You're going to you you wake. You've got a reason to wake up in the morning. Now, if all you do is plan and think what you're going to do, and you're just constantly carrying your sketchpad around, you're not going to you know that's also that's too much of the use of joy. People who are hebrophrenic, for example, over over involved with their sketchpad, they never do anything. And there's a homeopathic remedies that actually reflect that. The remedy sulfur. Somebody who needs sulfur tends to be like that. Okay. Now, if you're depressed, that means you don't see any hope. You haven't got any plans. You don't want to do anything. It's like your sketchpad is all crumbled up and grimy in your pocket or your pocketbook. Okay. 
And then you need a remedy like sepia, which represents, you know, and I, we can talk about that. So that's two sides of that particular, that particular tool. The sketch pad should solve a particular problem. You should, you know, sketch out your ideas, your ambitions, your ideas, and then put it away. So what, do the next thing. Okay, so the, the next tool um, is the screwdriver of anxiety, okay, which I was relating before to uh, adolescence. Anxiety is good. People don't want to, you don't want to say, I'm never anxious. That's not good. If you're in the forest and you're starving, your anxiety will keep you from eating an entire mushroom there that might be poisonous, maybe nibble the tiniest amount. So, you know, you bear down with your screwdriver, you know, on this particular issue, figure out whether this is good for you or not. Or if you're going on stage, your anxiety will prompt you, would prompt an adrenalization of you so that you, you really are primed to get up there uh, or give up completely if you really can't do it. Once you're on stage, put your, your uh, screwdriver anxiety away and perform. It should be just used long enough for you to, to get to get what you've got to do, you know, deal with a particular kind of inherent danger. Um, the third one is the, uh, I'm going to do the, the, um, the hacksaw of grief. Mm -hmm. We all have losses. We lose somebody. What are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to ever sort of pretend that nobody died and everything's really cool? Or are you going to uh, 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 never give up grieving and be, refuse to cry? There are people who just won't cry. That when they, when they, if you're constantly grieving, constantly, constantly crying, you're overusing your hacksaw of grief. You're just never cutting through. And if you, one of these people who's had such a big grief that they can't cry anymore, they just, this happens. I, I never shed a tear when my mother died. It was too big a, a grief. So they won't use their hacksaw of grief. It's got to be used. And I can give you remedies for both sides of that. Hmm. So it's a tool you use. You have to cut through your grief eventually to be free of it. It doesn't mean that it was not meaningful person who died or you lost but you have to eventually do that okay um what have i got left the hammer the uh if i got the hammer of anger uh, oh i'm sorry the pliers of fear okay fear and language again is so useful how come we say we're gripped by fear like the pliers you only grip long enough to know whether to fight or run hmm. then you put your pliers away so someone who's constantly fearful or someone who's totally reckless they're both, on, are they overusing their pliers or not using them at all? Okay. Very, very simple. This is very basic stuff, but there are remedies that represent uh, both sides of that, e of that equation. And the, the fifth one is the, um, the hammer of anger. That's a really obvious one. Okay. You see a nail sticking out, you take your hammer, smash it down, put your hammer away. Okay. This is somebody, anger should solve a problem, but you should not lash out blindly. By the way, anger and Chinese medicine is related to the liver and the eyesight. So the eyes and anger are very closely related. We reason we get pissed off is because we see too much. Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, and our God got mad at them. You know, mm -hmm. we lashing out blindly. We don't say, you know, or we lose. We go blind with rage. How come we don't say we go deaf with rage? The eyesight and 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 this is very very closely related. Anyway, um, there are people. You know, people people are healthy when they say, yeah, I told that guy to fuck off. Felt much better. But there are some people who feel worse after they get angry. And so they're using the reverse side of the hammer, the claw. They're digging away at each of themselves, and it doesn't solve a problem. And lo and behold, they have the dysfunctional cousin of anger, which is vexation. Ah, ah. Or they, mm. they, they will cry. They'll, they'll cry uh, instead of being angry. They, they will throw, slam a cabinet or throw something, but they will not deal with the problem. And they need a very, very specific remedy for that situation. Um, anyway, this is, this is a very basic model, much simpler than the one I told you about before. Uh, about how homeopathy can model these things, make sense of things. Um, and I use that routinely, you know, when, when it applies. Very, you know, the inborn toolkit of the emotions.
that that's so brilliant because any of those five emotions when stayed there for too long always with a hammer never putting the hammer away smashing everything everything looks like a nail that could lead over a year or two or five or ten toward a mental illness right towards some sort of psychosis towards some sort of 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 um that, that could that could put you uh in a tricky spot mentally same with fear etc and and so one of the questions that that I was that that I was hoping to ask you kind of illustrated for me which is if you are if you're the if you are the hammer and you're walking around hammering everything all the time there is a homeopathic antidote specifically for you and your context that will help what alleviate or let you put the hammer away and try a new tool well, I'll give you an exact example. Uh, probably the number one PTSD remedy is called stramonium. And this is perfect for the, Viet for the veteran who comes back from the war, who goes into a, a complete rage. Who are you looking at? You know, or uh, instantly like that. Um, this incredible rage comes out, overuse of the hammer. But I can get very specific about the remedy stramonium. That, that only happens to, that, that, that remedy state emerges from somebody who has witnessed something really terrifying, absolutely terrifying. So that rage is not a normal kind of a rage. That's coming from a deep sense of, of imminent annihilation. And mm. so that rage is to preserve him. Um, and I know that, I, yes, the other day, I had a, a child in my office I had to give stromonium to. And you've got to dig a little bit to find out what's coming, coming, where it's coming from. But people will bring me their child, will have these unbelievable tantrums. And there are various remedies for, for childhood tantrums. But this chart, this is this, you know, you have to make the connection between um, something early in life, uh, an ab abandonment. They will have, they'll have, they'll have symptoms which will be really tremendous clues: terror of the dark, a re reaction to anything that glitters or, gle or gleams. Um, they'll have a beseeching, highly uh, uh, affectionate quality, which is has this desperation to it, a beseeching quality, and and these rages that all points to the use of the remedy stramonium. So when I give that about a 30-day remedy, I'm expecting that parent, family to bring me that child and something's going to be significantly different about that child. So it's not, it's not like an, homeopathy does not erase anything. It doesn't, it, but it peels one layer away at a time. And so this particular very specific issue is what it's hand there. The plant, uh, which, the plant which is the gross version of, of the stramonium remedy, will produce that state in people under investigative circumstances. We know that. We know exactly what it will do. It will produce um, incredible thirst and the terror of the dark. It will actually inculcate that state when you do it under experimental conditions. So then we know, and the FDA has known that since at least 1938, that the law of similars applies if you could do in, if through you if you can demonstrate what the substance inculcates in people, you can treat them when they have that. Hmm. So to your point, um, it's not an, exactly an antidote. You've got to go through it. You've got to revisit the scene of the crime. That family will that child will probably have a, one horrific tantrum. <laughs> You know, while they're processing, like they're going to, you know, compressing the, the chronic situation into something smaller, shorter. And then you'll see a tremendous shift. Um, have the vital force will be tricked into converting a chronic problem into something like an acute problem. And over those period, few periods of weeks, if you were in my, if you were my intern, you'd see this on a daily basis. You'd see this being prescribed. You'd see the families coming back after several weeks and you'd see what I predicted in most instances happening. Wow. Um, that's how it works. Wow. Yeah, but so PTSD, that's a, uh, there are several other remedies that are similar to stramonium. Um, uh, 
I mean, people come, I mean, not everybody who goes through war and sees horrible things react exactly the same way. But that's a that's a very primary one. And anybody who's going to work in a, in a, in a, in a psychiatric emergency, emergency room and deal with kind of things would, 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 would absolutely know about that remedy. Hmm. Are you familiar or have you been treating um, a common experience with people post the COVID mess is are, are people, do people come in with, if they're coming to you, I think that they're, they're either at their last straw and they've tried everything else and it didn't work or their brains are open and their hearts are open to try, you know, alternative, uh, which is maybe not that right word, alternative remedies and, and approaches, approaches to health. I, I guess I'm curious is like, are you seeing like a COVID symptom, not, not a physical ailment, but a, a response to the, the crisis that we all got strung through the mud in? Well, uh, you need to give me a few more hours for this one, but I'll give you one quick answer. Um, this, this pandemic is not a normal pandemic. Um, it actually has changed very little in how I work. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the initial stages, uh, for a very brief time, people are the same and have, maybe have the same symptoms. My COVID experience was completely different from anybody else's that I knew. Um, but basically, whether people have, the, uh, uh, have t- tested positive or negative, they have very, very individualistic symptoms. It makes no difference to me whatsoever if someone says I've got COVID or not. I have to, I completely blot it out of my mind. The correct remedy works every single time when I give it to them. Um, that's, and so this is why this is, this is a weird, weird epidemic. There, people have, there's a pandemic going on. People are getting sick. God knows what it's from, from EMF or from a diet or, or air pollution. Um, God bless you if you think you're going to extract the virus and, and say this is that cause. The virus is basically part of the, uh, the alarm system. That it's one, it's an exosome that is able to replicate itself inside people. It is not an evildoer. Um, I, I'm sorry, it's just not. The problem, the issue around um, transmission is very, very confusing to me, actually. But to your point, um, I have treated people, um, many, many people with, with so-called COVID. It, it, there is, a, I just use the word out of convenience. It doesn't affect how I work. It's, I'm still going to use uh, the individualized remedy. I'll hedge that a little bit. There are a couple of remedies that came up a little bit more frequently than before, you know, and that they relate, which relate to um, uh, restlessness and relate to fever and uh, loss of tense sense of smell. Those, those are the only things mm-hmm. really, uh, exhaustion that have been common, but that's not enough to point to a particular, you know, really clear picture. It's simply not. And in the homeopathic community, we've had no, it's too many protocols, very, very varied protocols, never had anything like this. So varied. Normally, we find what's called the epidemicus gener- generalicus, because if it's a certain kind of influenza, people, as you say, have a particular presentation. And we know the remedy like influenzaidum or, or, or gelsemium that we can routinely give, which has been done in every other pandemic in history. And I go through that in this book with you know, around cholera, all the remedies that have been f- magnificently used during those times. Right now, it's something different. And uh, basically, I've also heard COVID is actually two diseases. Early stages, it's not significant. You treat people and, and you, can, you can help them with it quite a bit. If it gets to the stage where they have no oxygen, that's a different disease. And uh, they're getting, they were getting really poor quality of care in the emergency room. They were not people were not fixing it out, figuring it out. I've yeah. not had an opportunity to treat anybody in those situations. There are remedies for that, that thing, but I've never been invited to the emergency rooms to, to deal with that. Um, so big question, big answer to your question. There's no clear 
a long-term COVID picture. There isn't. If they're having cognitive problems, they're going to be varied. They're going to be not one particular kind. Um, that's what, what I'm saying. Let me let me sort of qualify or sort of reframe that question briefly. And and I appreciate I appreciate that. And I also appreciate how you think about what we'll call COVID, right? As an exosome or as a response to an environmental factor. You know, I've listened to enough uh Dr. Kaufman podcasts and to, you know, to to be thinking of thinking differently about what viruses are or aren't and whether or not it's been isolated. You know, I keep an open mind about things like that. But what I'm really curious about is trauma that people have experienced having lived through the COVID pandemic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is oh, there... Absolutely. The, yeah. the, the loss of socialization, uh, the amount of fear that people are exposed to, um, uh, the, con the intra-family conflicts, that yeah. this has caused uh, around the restrictions. Uh, there's every kind of, of stress at the, at the individual level, at the family level, at the societal level. I mean, look what's happening in China. Um, the, the issue can totally divide the country. Uh, the whole thing about masks, some people absolutely cannot tolerate them. Um, the, the vaccination issue, which I do not want to go into, beyond, I'll be completely censored if I talk about that. Uh, um, yeah, the, the, by far, I, I think the, the biggest problem with it is the fear and the, the, the mentality that's been created and the paranoia and the loss of socialization, our whole generation of children is going to be very damaged by this. Yeah. Yeah. It, if I know that it's individualized, but if, is there, is there a common, is there a common homeopathic remedy for, for that fear? Well, uh, arsenicum is probably the, the, the one that homeopaths will tell you, you know, most immediately, that's a fear of, that involves uh, yeah, fear of death, a fear of contagion. It involves restlessness, um, a, a, a tremendous concern for your loved ones. Um, arsenic is, of course, a, uh, a, a flesh destroyer, but it's also used as a preservative. Again, these polarities, everything can mm -hmm. be one way or the other. Um, in the constitutional picture, a, an arsenic person is a highly, highly perfectionistic, exactly the kind of person that you'd want to have uh, be your project manager or run your office. They just can't stand making a mistake and they're you know, really perfectionist. Highly, highly anxious remedy state with tremendous restlessness. I've gone into that state uh, on occasion. That's not my typical presentation. But a lot of homeopaths would if they put, put, put a gun to their head and say, give me something to prescribe for the, the fear around this pandemic. They would say, take 30C of arsenicum uh, once a week or something like that. That mm -hmm. would be one remedy. The new ones that have come up that we didn't really use very frequently, Eupatorium perfoliatum and... Uh, and um, um, let me think what the other one is. Uh, Squilla, things like that. A couple of couple of weird remedies that we didn't really have too much recourse for, but what came up before. Now we're using them frequently in protocols, and they all have to do with respiration. Hmm. Fascinating. But, uh, but for the most part, um, yeah, you can have this little toolkit of 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 handy uh, acute acute care remedies, but ultimately the the better prescribing is again individual basis how this yeah. is affecting what what button has this pushed in you individually matter mm. of fact the most important question i ever ask i don't care if i share it uh, i usually do it halfway into my 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 interview it says sean what's your hot button what's the situation you least like to be in and what happens when your button is pushed do you get drunk do you write a poem do you punch somebody in the nose do you retreat to your room do you cry do you overeat? What do you do? When, okay, or I might ask it the other way around. If I saw you really bent out of shape, what immediately, tell me what that described to me very accurately, what you feel and what that's like and what immediately preceded it. 
that question, how we become uncomfortable has a great deal to do with how we become ill. And that applies to acute illnesses to, you know, and, and pandemics. Each one of us is an individual to some extent enduring this pandemic. Uh, and people have, as far as I can see, you know, my practice, you know, rather, re- rather remarkably different, different experiences with it. Mm-hmm. The fear, the fear and the paranoia, though, that's an overlying, that's a pretty, con- pretty much a constant, though. Yeah. And that's why arsenicum, arsenicum does come up uh, as, as a prime remedy. Wow. By the way, also, the, the typical remedy for the flu is gelsemium, which I mentioned before. And the feeling there is that of having had a setback of some sort, some kind of thing that's setback. Now, just cookbook style, gelsemium is used when you've got the flu. But if you're a homeopath, you know the secret of that remedy. It means that somebody has suffered some kind of a shock or a setback, and that has created a vulnerability in them to then get the flu. It's not simply something that befell you. Once again, never, ever is. The Mm. mind-body issue is permanently there. Something has scared you. And when you're scared, and by the way, shivering, right? Like deconstruct this. When people have the flu, what happens? They shiver, they get tremors. That's, what's that? Mind-body. You're afraid. You don't sh- shiver and shake unless it's an element of fear. You may not be aware of it, or you will not connect it to what has frightened you or set you back, but that's the case. After 911, guess what? We have, we're treating flu all the time. People were terrified. Oh, and and gelsemium just was constantly coming up. No surprise to homeopaths. Fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, and now I'm thinking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into the future and thinking, well, how do we, how do we have better care for, uh, for the men, for the mentally ill? How do we have more homeopaths? How do we create more options for people? Um, you got an easy answer for me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fever, fever dream section of my book, the last section called, uh, um, Investing in sanity, but we'll give you some of those answers. Yeah, I'd like to see the asylums come back. There is a, a branch of homeopathy that my colleague Juma is uh, involved with. This is a revolutionizing um, homeopathy in Europe, which is kind of like what functional medicine does in conventional internal medicine. Um, we're getting so many sick people, so much sicker than ever before, that we can't really do classical homeopathy with those kinds of people. We have to detox them from uh, a lot of the uh, pharmaceuticals that they're on, detox mm. them from... from uh, you know, support them with, with completely new remedies made from the neurotransmitters as we use the in combination with these kind of things. So I think if that if that if that method sweeps you know sweeps across the world, that would be uh, a, a very good thing. That would be state of the art homeopathy mm-hmm. for the people who are really sick. And on the other side, people who just who have been pretty well off and just want to uh, you know maintain that they they. Just to keep studying homeopathy as it's as it presents itself, work to change our relationship to madness and prescribing. Um, it's it's our, our form of our understanding of madness is itself completely insane. We I talking to you about what's happening in New York. We've, we 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 we're doing everything wrong. We're we're uh, we're uh, trying to remove the stigma of mental illness. What a crock of shit! Quite frankly, um, the stigma is 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 uh is is the designation is the designation and the refusal. To let people uh, experience um, their existential issues, you know, um, upfront, and and uh, get just support for that. The, the the stigma is 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 the care which buries it. You know, uh, is inherently ashamed of it, wants to profit from it monetarily, um, drug you up, create new conditions that they then require more of the same horrible horrible prescribing. 
It's a, just a ridiculous direction we've gone in. The Amer America has the worst mental health statistics in, of any developing country in the world because of our state-of-the-art psychopharmaceutical prescribing. And that's not yeah. me talking. That's Robert Whitaker. We've got a lot of work to do, and it's work worth doing. Um, I can't wait for – I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I had to take my time with it because uh, um, – there's just so much. It's really dense. It's got it's got a ton of great information and historical context. I really I really enjoyed it. And I think if um, if you're interested in in how some good ideas have worked in the past, some really good ideas, it's, it, you should you should check it out. And 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 maybe as a potential model for the future, if we can get back to sanity. Um, well, before I ask the final question, which is a fill in the blank question, um, where can people learn more about you? Where can they buy the book or, or engage with you? Yeah. Sane Asylums is pretty widely available. It's, uh, it's a breakthrough book in that uh, there's been a kibosh on, on traditional publishings, putting out anything with the word homeopathy in it, but Simon and Schuster is publishing it, is, is distributing it, distributing it. Uh, it's available at Amazon. Um, just just Google it and 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 pick it up. Homeopathic educational services. All the all the all the uh, outlets have it. Um, I'm very grateful to Inner Traditions for having brought it out. And as you could tell, I, I the, the information was so suppressed. I was all bottled up. I, I could have written two more books on the topic. And but honestly, it's a disgrace that a homeopath had to write this. I think a team of historians should write it. Uh, should have written it. But I've surveyed histor history departments of the universities, especially the medical history departments. They have a completely phony. Uh, uh, his, the version that they're teaching, which is why this had to come out. I'm sick of, of, of being lied to. And uh, this has a terrible trickle down effect. When all the history departments act like homeopathy was a heresy, was unimportant, was never a big deal, uh, that nobody liked it. Um, that's, it's so wrong. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. um, and it, has, it does a lot of damage. I'm laughing, but it's, it's terrible. Um, so I was privileged to write this. I'm very glad uh, I, I, I was able to. I think people should read it to have their eyes opened and and um and help homeopathy and themselves out by uh by at least creating some discussion ar around it mary todd lincoln the mary todd lincoln story that's unbelievable in itself why should i have been the one to figure this out she was cured by homeopathy and i'm, I'm telling you this it's a scoop 150 years later uh it's a story that's never been told so there's a lot a lot there and i was um i hope people you know do pick it up and, and show it to other people and, and let's get some discussion going here because this should not just be a one person show. I sure, sure as hell hope it's not. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to, to help with that discussion and, and to push it forward um, because there we need, again, we need new ideas. We also need old ideas. We, <laughs> uh, so this, this is the final question and um, it's, it's meant to be broad and to catch you off guard to fill in the blank. And this can be based on, any and all of, of your experience and how you see fit to answer, but please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing that illness is not to be feared. I'll give you my adage. Acute illness detoxifies, chronic illness informs. You can, your body is talking the language of somat a somatic language. Its symptoms can be deconstructed. They are not there to be feared. They're not there to be to give you some idea something terrible is going to happen and you need to take some hopeless tests. Learn from what you're experiencing. All experiences like that, medical experience symptoms are not very much different from that. Your mechanic probably loves it when his car breaks down so we can fix it, you know? Um, I, I'm not thrilled when I'm sick, 
but I feel a whole lot better after I figured out what's going on with me and I treat myself than I've never been sick in the first place. So learn not to, not to fear acute illness and learn to detest chronic illness because that's something that's being covered up there and uh, you need to convert your chronic problem into something acute and homeopathy can help you with that. Um, and even if you don't do homeopathy, think about that a little bit. And uh, there's lots of things. Acupuncture can help you with that. But engage with what's going on with you and try to resist the tendency that's pushed on us from so many sources to be afraid and to go through useless diagnoses that are just designed to, to uh, enrich somebody else who's got some kind of product. Mm. That's my blank. I'll fill in. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Jerry Cantor, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Sean, you're a fabulous interviewer. You're absolutely right. You made it so easy for me. And this was a tremendous pleasure for me. And I'm honored.